Well, the affirmation uh, that God is a spirit is probably uncontroversial to everyone in this room. Maybe even to the point of being so obvious as to be boring, or at least less than fully stimulating. And yet, yet these things ought not to be, right? For if God is interesting, and we're asserting that he is, then the fact that God is spirit is also interesting and highly relevant. Think, just to start here, think of the the famous answer in the shorter catechism to the question, what is God? The answer begins with, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and so forth. So the spirituality of God is the first thing said of him. Right? It has a certain primitive and pervasive quality. And it needs to be fronted in any discussion of who God is. We just heard it in the gospel lesson, right? It's a crucial part of our Lord's discussion with the woman at the well there in John chapter 4. Jesus affirms simply, God is spirit. And our confession, not the shorter catechism, but our confession calls God a most pure spirit. A most pure spirit. And then immediately the confession mentions two things which follow from God being a spirit. Right? Two things which follow. Namely, that God is invisible and that he's without a body, incorporeal, without a body. So, in unpacking this mystery of the spirituality of God, we're going to make the same two points. Incorporeal and invisible. So first, then, incorporeal, or incorporeal. When we confess that God is a spirit, what we mean is he's without a body, without a corpus, without flesh, incorporeal. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have, the risen Jesus tells his stunned disciples. A spirit does not have a body. Now here, I want to pause, we could have done this anywhere, but... This way of speaking, which we have been doing and which we shall do throughout this series, and by that I mean using terms like incorporeal or invisible or infinite or unchangeable, this way of speaking is called the via negativa or the way of negation. In the East, they call it apophatic or negative theology. It's important to stop and think about what we're doing. These negations, right, they are negations. God is not embodied. He is not visible. He is not finite. He is not passable, meaning he doesn't suffer. He is immutable, meaning he doesn't change. These negations themselves, the fact that we have to talk like this, should alert us to the mystery, right, to the infinite depths that we are launching out into when we speak of this God. It turns out that in many cases, many cases, we cannot say just exactly what God is. So we find ourselves indicating or pointing at his being indirectly by terms such as these, which say what he is not. Now, when you're in Christian circles, you're not even aware you're doing this at a certain point. 
I remember having a very, very smart, very frustrated co-worker at IBM years ago. And when we would talk about Christianity, and I would use these terms, he was so frustrated because he would keep saying, you're just telling me what God is not. Right? The being you're describing has no positive content. You're, just, you're constantly saying, he's not this, and he's not that, and he's not this, and he's not that. And he was on to something, right? See, because we are cognitive idolaters, we come to think that these are actually positive definitions of God. We think we're describing him directly and positively. Well, he's infinite, and he's this, he's unchangeable, and he's this. But they're not. We're not describing him directly or positively. These are negations drawn from creaturely reality. We're just not paying enough attention to the way we even talk to realize what's going on. It takes an unbeliever to say, you gave me nothing. You're giving me nothing. You're just saying God's not like this, and he's not like that, and he's not like this, and he's not like that. And if you do this long enough, right, if you assume these negative terms are positive definitions, you can come to think that you have God pretty much wired. Right? Basically figured out, pretty well defined. After all, he's infinite and unchangeable. This can only happen when a people does not think about thinking about God. We don't think about God much, and we definitely don't think about thinking about God. So so this series is, of course, designed to redress this balance somewhat, right? We want to talk about God, but we have to talk about how we talk about him. When we don't pay attention to our terms, which by their very nature, these terms should humble us. They should chasten us before the mystery of God and his spirituality. Right? So God is bodiless. It's another negative term. He's without a body. And it's strange to us because we live in and through our bodies. Our bodies are integral to who we are. They're essential. They're not just like a prison. Plato thought the body was a prison house for the soul. They're not. The bodies are essential. We live through the body. So we can only gesture toward what it might be to be some non-bodily or disembodied pure spirit. But nevertheless, of course, we can say a few things here. We can affirm some things, and I want to affirm a few. In speaking of God as a spirit, it's clear that the Bible means, among other things, that there are no boundaries to God's being. Right? You're bounded by your body. Right? Often in ways that we're, we just have come to accept, but... You're really constrained and limited by this thing. Yet you probably spend 65% of your life just getting from point A to point B because you have to use these two little things and you have to walk over there two feet at a time. Right? You have to move over to there. You have to go to the restroom, whatever. Right? Your body is limiting you. It really constrains you. What God is bodiless, there's no boundaries. Now, angels and demons, they're spirits. They're bodiless creatures, but they're finite spirits. When scripture speaks of God as a spirit, it's clear that it means he's an infinite spirit. For him to be bodiless is to be boundless. Which is, again, another negative term. Now also, since bodies, right, bodies are extended in space. God, then, is without extension. He's aspatial. 
which is, of course, some of you will note, another negative term. He doesn't take up space. So you have a being who is everywhere, it takes up space nowhere. Right? The fact that God is truly, fully, completely present in your inner being does not mean there's no room for your pancreas. Right? Right? He doesn't take up any room in any pew. He doesn't ask anybody to slide over. He doesn't dislodge any space. But we have, we have no ability to grasp something like this. He is not a creature in space, God. Nor is he over space. Nor is he in some other space. God is not in any space because he utterly transcends space completely. As a bodiless spirit, he's immaterial. He's not a physical being. Nor is he a really, really refined material like gas, or like like breath, or like the wind. These are metaphors the Bible uses, but they don't describe his essence. He's not something really thin, something almost immaterial, like ether, or like sound waves, or like electromagnetism. God is a spirit. It's a radical assertion. And I'm telling you, you kick against it. If someone denies that God is a spirit, and people do deny it, I'll come to that in a bit. They are a heretic. They are not merely in error. Or they're profoundly confused. But affirming that God is a spirit is not as boring or as obvious or as trite as it might appear. It requires some sophistication to affirm this. You're just not used to seeing the difficulty, so you surmount the difficulty easily. Here's what I mean by this. You might recall last week, if you were here, like last week we spoke of the simplicity of God. Right? Among other things last week, we said that the attributes of God do not mean that God is like cobbled together of various virtues or properties the way human beings are. In God, all of his attributes are one. Though there are plenty of texts which appear to say otherwise and treat them as distinct, diverse properties. And by the way, we'll see this same thing when we come to look at how God is without passions. God is impassable, meaning God does not suffer. He is not the subject of passions. And yet, yet, surely... Right? There are plenty of texts which appear to say God is deeply passionate and that he even suffers, especially emotionally. Or when we look at God's unchangeable character, his immutability, it will appear there that plenty of texts assert that God repents or that he changes his mind or all sorts of other change in God. So notice, notice the situation. The church holds, historically, and by the church here, I mean Catholic, Protestant, North, South, East, West, right? The church holds, historically, that God is simple, without parts to his being. But the Bible can appear to say otherwise. The church holds that God is impassable, that he does not suffer, nor is he subject to passions, yet the Bible can certainly be read as saying otherwise. The church holds that God is immutable and unchanging, and yet the Bible asserts directly in many places, or at least a handful of places, change in God. 
Okay, what am I getting at here? Well, I'm, I'm trying to make two points here, two. First is this, I believe we alluded to this last week, but if you read the text of the Bible naively, just a surface, simple kind of reading, you will be wrong about all sorts of things. Right? The, the text needs to be read in its complexity and its wholeness and in and with the tradition of the church. Or you will surely end up with fringe and idiosyncratic and corrupt conceptions of God and Christ. The text appears to say a lot of things that it doesn't actually say. So, I'm a sworn enemy of the cult of the lone, lonely Bible reader with his or her six friends who think the tradition is wrong and they are right. They are almost always wrong. Usually they don't even know what the questions are. So that's the first thing. The Bible has to be read seriously in its complexity in the tradition. Think about, let me just make another point on this. Just let's, let's assume you're a first century Christian and it's 51 AD and you live in Rome, right? You don't have a new text. The only place you get to hear the Bible is if you go to the public assembly. That's the only place it's read. There are no other copies. You can't stay home and read it. So when I say today the Bible has to be read in tradition, American Christians think, oh, what does that mean? I have to go to some uh, tradition meeting? No, it just means you go to church. That's where the Bible was read. Now, we happen to be able to bind them together and print them and have them at home now. But that's a luxury. The text is to be read in the tradition. The second thing I want to say about the situation, and remember, the situation I'm I'm trying to highlight here is where the church seems to affirm A, and the Bible can appear to affirm not A. The second thing to say about this is this. You can grasp that this is so, and you handle it with ease, when it comes to the bodily, spiritual existence of God. Because everyone in here, I trust, affirms that God does not have a body. And yet, the Bible attributes body parts to God in literally dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of places. I mentioned this last week, I think. Look, here's just a few. Proverbs 15 and 2 Chronicles say God has eyes. Exodus 24 says God has feet. Hosea 11 says God has a heart. Isaiah 40 says God has a mouth. Isaiah 59 says God has an arm. And we could go on and on and on. Sometimes I wonder, why are there not more people who affirm that God does have a body? It's not like they're lacking their text, right? And the church has had movements based in part on this whole raft of texts, which have, in fact, affirmed that God does indeed have a body. The heretics are always biblicists, right? meaning they are always quoting Bible verses. If you look at the Council of Nicaea, it's the people who opposed Athanasius who said, but the Bible says, and Athanasius says, yes, but you're wrong about what it means by what it says, because you're not reading the text with the mind of the, of the faithful. Right? The, the people that opposed the divinity of Christ had their text. The Father is greater than I. The whole New Testament is the Son obeying, submitting to, and placing himself under the Father's authority. So the people on the other side said, well, look, it's obvious. There are hundreds of texts that the Son is not the same being as the Father. So they, they always have their text. In fact, there was a group known as the Anthropomorphites. This is in the 4th century in Syria. 
anthropomorphites, form of, the form of man people. And they took the text of Genesis 1.27, God made man in his image. Right? They took the text seriously and literally, and they held that God has a human form. Since man is God's image and man has a body, God must have a body. The logic is impeccable, by the way. It's just also ridiculous. And this idea that God has a body and similar ideas like this have cropped up elsewhere. Right? The Mormons, I believe, hold that God has a body. And there are scholars working today. I heard a podcast with one not a couple months ago. There are scholars working today who confess Jesus Christ, who believe we should rethink the whole God does not have a body thing because there are just too many Bible verses that say he does have a body. So the the issues here and the ideas at stake here are not boring and they are not irrelevant and they are not uh, shelved or, 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 you know, placed in some bygone era. In fact, R.C. Sproul tells this humorous story about being in seminary. And he said he was under this very learned and very intimidating professor. And the professor, by playing the devil's advocate in the class, he got every student in the class to back off the proposition that God does not have a body. They all walked in and said, God does not have a body. And what the professor did was he used all of these texts. And he used them in a clever way, in a sophisticated way. And he backed them off one, one at a time. At the, at the very least, inducing doubt in all of them. So in spite of what certain texts appear to plainly say, God is a most pure spirit. He is immaterial and bodiless. Right? When somebody says, well, look, I'm a simple man. I just read my Bible and it says this to me. You should remember this, Right? It says in a hundred other places, God has eyes and God has arms. If you're going to do this, you're going to be wrong about a lot of stuff. And all of that's really introduction to the second point. Invisible. If God has no body, he has no properties that can be accessed by our bodily senses. God has no properties that can be accessed by your bodily senses. He is then, to our senses, undetectable. He's invisible. Now, in a world where, you know, pagan, there are visible pagan shrines and gods everywhere in the Roman Empire, this point would be shocking. But again, we're just sort of used to it. We're sort of used to it. But God is invisible. Romans 1.20, that we heard it in the New Testament lesson, says this. For, for his, now notice this, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So creation is visible, but what does it point to? It points to to his invisible attributes, right? The text is a clear affirmation about God's essential invisibility. The creation points beyond itself to the invisible one. Moses endured, Hebrews 11 tells us, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So what is Christian faith? Christian faith is a kind of seeing. 
It is a kind of seeing of the invisible God. It's a mode of kind of sight. And this means the whole Christian life, since it's all lived by faith, is lived in and out of the realm of the invisible. I mean, think about how important this invisibility thing is. Faith is the mode by which you see and perceive spiritual realities. So, 1 Timothy 1, for example, we read of the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, God only wise. Later in 1 Timothy, we're told that God dwells in unapproachable light, and he's the God whom no one has ever seen or can see. Notice that. No one has ever seen God. No one can ever see God. That's in the New Testament, by the way. No one has ever seen God. John tells us this in the prologue to his gospel, and he tells us in his first epistle in chapter 4. No one has ever seen God. And then you have Paul in 1 Timothy adding, or can see God. So it would seem like the invisibility of God is this permanent, unchangeable reality. In fact, this is precisely what we saw affirmed or heard affirmed in the Old Testament lesson from Exodus 33. Moses asked to see God's glory, and he's told, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim my name before you, but you cannot see my face. For man cannot see me and live. And then God takes Moses, right? He hides him in the cleft of a rock. Notice what the text says there in Exodus 33. He hides him in the cleft of a rock with his hand, which we know he doesn't have. And he tells him, you shall see my back, which he also doesn't have. But my face, which I also don't actually have, but which here stands for my essence or my immediate glory, my face shall not be seen. So it turns out that God's invisibility is such that if we were to somehow violate it, we would die. So now invisibility is like a fire, like a sacred thing. It should be a lot more interesting to you now, God's invisibility. Because if he weren't, we'd be dead. The invisible God cannot be seen by creatures and is in fact in his holy splendor lethal to them. Now, I want to assert that this incorporeal, invisible God is something of a problem for us. And not just because of his lethality. Deep down, we wish this were not so. Because it means God has a certain elusive quality to him. He's ungraspable. There's another worldliness about him. He's unmanipulatable. It also means he often seems absent. There's, of course, truth to this, right? I mean, just think about it. I've always been astonished by Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians, where he says, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but to be present in the body is to be absent from the Lord. What an astonishing statement that is. These are Christians in the New Covenant, filled with the Holy Spirit, in union with Jesus Christ, who have the Spirit in the most intimate parts of our inner being. Paul asserts that. And then he says, as long as you have this thing, there's a kind of fundamental absence between you and God. That's just a remarkable text. You would think somebody would say, Paul, how could that be? Jesus is in my heart. 
I'm united with Jesus. I have an intimate relationship with Jesus. How can I be absent? And yet he says it. There's there's a fundamental kind of absence that this entails. And to try and bridge this absence now is a colossal mistake. Right? The fact that God is invisible means his very existence is hard to grasp. It's not self-evident, like, say, the existence of apples, right? There are no apple atheists, you know, people who deny the existence of apples. It's not that hard to prove the existence of apples. The fact that God is invisible teaches us that he's not a person like other human persons. And thus, a relationship with him is not, in many ways, akin to chatting with a friend, no matter how many times Christians insist on saying stuff like that. Yes, there's some analogy to human relationships, but there's greater infinite disanalogy. No one who is sane has invisible friends. And besides, God doesn't talk back outside of his speech in Holy Scripture outside of the witness of creation, he's silent. But we want assurances, right? We want signs. We want physical, visible, concrete, tangible tokens of his nearness. We're always hankering for this stuff because we're deeply embodied creatures and we know through the senses and we crave embodied intimacy with God and with others. And it is true, it is gloriously true, that God has, in a profound sense, become visible in Jesus Christ. Right? John's prologue. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. But here's the thing. Even Jesus has now been removed from the realm of sight and is not visible to us. What we are left with is the ordinary means of grace as ways to commune with God. The word, sacraments, prayer. But prayer is still speaking to an invisible being. And that's why, that's why we have so much difficulty with it. One of the main reasons, right? Right? People think, well, why why do you struggle with prayer? Why do I struggle with prayer? Here's a book to help you with your struggles with prayer. Well, it'd be a lot easier if God was visibly in the room with you. Like, nobody would have any trouble then. The fundamental theological reason we struggle with prayer is that God's invisible. The word, the word read or preached, the word is physical in the sense that it requires mouths and sound waves and ears. But even the word is invisible. It dissipates the moment it's spoken. It's gone. But just like that. In fact, the power of the word is the power of weakness and impotence. Words are impotent and weak things. They're just taken up by the, the invisible spirit and used mightily. What about the sacraments? Well, the sacraments are, are physical, visible signs. But they're sacraments of something which is invisible. They point away from themselves to him who is now invisible. They are not ends in themselves. They are reminders, in fact, that we are not at the end. 
So as I said, faith itself, the very principal act of the Christian, faith itself is a kind of seeing of him who is now veiled and invisible, even the incarnate one. So yes, it's true, we can speak of Christianity as an embodied, incarnate faith, but that's because we're embodied creatures, not because God is. And so at every point, at every point, even after the incarnation, the faith of the church has to deal with knowing the invisible God. There's no point at which we can shelve this. There's no point at which it doesn't bear down upon us. So I'm going, to, I'm going to conclude, and I'm going to give you four practical applications. It's practical. High theology is highly practical. So four concluding applications. First, we walk by faith, and that means we do not walk by sight. So we need a revolution whereby interior seeing by faith becomes dominant and visible reality seen with physical sight becomes subordinate. Right? That's a convulsion if we're to undergo that. But that's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, Paul could have said, look, we walk by faith and sight. We walk by sight supplemented by faith. But he doesn't do that. He says we walk the totality of the Christian life by faith and not by physical sight. So to take the spirituality of God seriously means to become spiritual people. And spiritual people do not live or walk by physical sight. The great uh, Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, said the invisibility of God should teach us to think most highly of the things that are invisible. Well, that's a, that's a pretty straightforward application, right? The invisibility of God should teach us to think most highly of the things that are invisible and less of visible things. We're far too worldly, far too sensuous in the sense of tied to our senses to even know what to do with such advice. Right? But ba- Baxter's just echoing Paul. Right? Paul says, look, because your outer man, is physical being, is decaying, Your inner, invisible person is being renewed. And because that's the, right, Paul says that's the basic condition everybody in here is in, right? Your outer man is decaying. Your inner man is being renewed. The visible, the visible you is decaying, crumbling. The invisible you is being renewed. And because that's the case, Paul says, we do not look to things that are seen, but we look to things that are unseen. Like it's a basic mode of Christian existence to not look to for our comfort and our solace, things that are seen. Why, Paul says? Because the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. Value not, these are wonderful gifts of God, but Baxter says, value not sight and sense too much. This is why Paul says, fix not your mind on sensible things. This is Baxter now quoting, basically quoting Paul from Colossians 3, and sort of riffing on it. He says, fix not your mind on sensible things. Remember that your God, remember that your God, your home, your portion are unseen. And therefore, he says, live in hearty affection to them as if you saw them. Right? That's what faith is, right? Faith is living 
in hearty affection to invisible realities as if they were now present to us. Love him, Baxter says, and fear him and trust him and serve him as you would do if you beheld him. That's the first application. The second. The second is a piece of comfort, really, I think. Because God is a spirit and he's bodiless. He can be near you. He can be near us in fullness, in comfort and in power through the sending of the invisible spirit. This is why Jesus at the ascension says, it's good for you that I go away. It's good for you that I go away. Otherwise, in, in this body on earth, there'd be a limited number of people with access to me at one time. Because there are no boundaries to God's being, we can be strengthened by his power through the Spirit in our inner being. So that Christ, Paul says, might dwell in our hearts through faith. So think about what's happening to us, what our state of affairs is, right? The gift of the invisible spirit creates the invisible gift of faith, linking us to Christ who is currently not visible to us. Third application, in the context of the gospel reading, Jesus is talking about right worship. God is a spirit and thus can be worshipped anywhere. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Right? This means our worship is fundamentally a spiritual action done by spiritual people in the spirit rendered to God who is spirit. And in our tradition, we've traditionally understood that the second commandment tells us right, this God cannot be represented under any visible form or with any graven images. The invisibility of our God means our worship is regulated by the truth of Scripture and not by our carnal sense imaginations. Finally, the last application. All these scriptural assertions that God cannot be seen, you probably feel the tension of them, right? When you think of the incarnation or even you think of the destiny of the church. They should be taken in the following sense. He cannot be seen in the nature of the case by men. God in his essence, in the nature of the case, cannot be seen by human, human creatures. Unless he should grant such a gift through a mediator. And in fact, in Jesus Christ, the invisible God made visible, we have been given the gift that will enable the seeing of the unseeable God. Not by faith, as in this age, but by sight. So here, can we make the invisibility of the spirituality of God any more relevant than this? Jesus Christ came so that we might see the unseeable, invisible God in face-to-face communion. That's why he came. He came that you might see the unseeable God in face-to-face communion in everlasting glory. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Whatever mysterious mode that seeing takes, it won't be by faith. It will be by some kind of sight. When he appears, John tells us, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And in the consummation, right, after the visible creation is judged and gives way to the new creation, there we are told... In Revelation, his servants shall see his face. 
the privilege that Moses was denied. His servants shall see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And, John continues, there'll be no need of any physical creational light, for night will be no more, and there will need no light of lamp or sun. There'll be no creaturely illumination necessary of any kind. For the Lord our God will be our light. Fix your eyes, then, the eyes of your heart on Jesus, through whom you shall indeed gaze upon the beauty of the triune God. Amen. Amen.